The last book of the Bible records seven letters Jesus wrote to seven first century churches. Real churches with real people making real church history. Many believe these churches also preview the entire flow of church history from its birth to the end of the age. The fact that a prophetic book like Revelation contains these letters from heaven supports this idea. Letters went to Ephesus, the loveless church, and to Smyrna, the persecuted church, and to Pergamum, the compromising church, and to Thyatira, the corrupt church, and to Sardis, the dead church, and to Philadelphia, the faithful church, and finally to Laodicea, the lukewarm church. Which church best describes you and the fellowship to which you belong? I'm Ron Jones, something good starts right now. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Hello and welcome to Something Good with Dr. Ron Jones, lead pastor at Atlantic Shores Baptist Church in Virginia Beach, Virginia. My name is Brian Davis, always glad to have you with us. The revelation of Jesus Christ is an unveiling of future events, but it also reveals the condition of the church. Not only the seven churches in Asia to whom the letters were addressed, but every church from that day to this. Ron explores the content of those letters next as he continues his teaching series, Mysteries of the Apocalypse, The Last Days of Planet Earth, and The Return of Jesus Christ. Online, you'll find us at somethinggoodradio.org where you can listen to the broadcast on your schedule. You can also subscribe to the podcast at Spotify, at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get yours. And now from Revelation chapter two, here's Ron with part two of his Something Good Radio message, Letters from Heaven. We're finding in our culture this drift toward socialism, which 50, 60 years ago, we would have thought would never be possible. I was at a pastor's briefing not too long ago on Capitol Hill, put on by a ministry called Wall Builders, and they brought in, uh, I don't know, 20, 25, maybe 30 members of Congress over a day and a half, and each one shared, you know, 20 minutes or so of a briefing and then 10 minutes of Q&A and then they were gone and, and it was just fascinating to sit there and hear one member of Congress after another kind of give a briefing from their perspective. I remember one particular representative, well known from the state of Minnesota, she just kind of dropped into her conversation this statement, socialism replaces God with government. And she said it in a way that was so matter of fact that it's like, yeah, everybody knows this, don't you? And I had to think about that for a moment. Is that really what this is all about? I understand that communism is atheistic in its origin. It says that God doesn't even exist. But socialism, one step removed from that, says, no, God is not God. The government is God. And you see, our founding fathers established this country, and they wrote it into our constitution, that it was based upon unalienable rights. You know what an unalienable right is? It's a right that God gives to you not the government. And then when God gives you a right, the government can't take it away. But socialism comes along and says, well, you know, you can still have your God, but, but government is going to replace God. And let me tell you something, if government is big enough to give you everything, including tell you what you have rights to, it's also big enough to one day take it away. And our founding fathers understood that's not what we want to base this country on. 
It's based upon unalienable rights, which are rights that only God can give. We want to keep the government small and God big. And we're just, we're, we're reversing that now. Socialism makes government big and God small. And so I, I just, you know, are we seeing the work of, of course the devil is at work. I remember years ago when I was in D.C. and I lived there for about 10 years, I, I came across a story about the, the movie The Exorcist. Do you remember the movie The Exorcist years ago? All about, you know, satanic this and that. And it was based on a true story that took place in the early 1900s, early 20th century. Do you know where that true story took place? In Maryland, just outside the nation's capital. Is the devil busy in that place just as he was in Pergamum? Oh, you bet he is. And he's patient. He knows he's on a short lease. He knows his time is coming, but he's chipping away at the foundation. And for those of you who think socialism is wonderful, don't just look at the goodies they're promising to give away free of charge. That's, that's the hook that draws you. That's the bait Behind that is an effort to replace God with government, to make government big and God small. No, this country is God is big and government is small. Okay, let's always keep it that way. All right, so that's Pergamum, the compromising church. And the church in any generation has to, again, see and understand its role in the world today and in God's eternal plan. Let's make sure we're not a compromising church like Pergamum compromising with our culture. The fourth and final one is Thyatira. Thyatira I call the corrupt church. And here's what Jesus said in Revelation 2, verses 19 and 20, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, Jesus sent the longest letter to the smallest church in Thyatira. Thyatira was located about 35 miles from Pergamum and was the last line of defense for an invading, invading army that was heading to the capital city. It played a strategic role that way, and there was a little church that had started there. And like others, they received mixed reviews. You're doing some things very well. I know your works, your love, and your faith, your service, you're patiently enduring, and your latter works are on the increase, and things are going pretty well. And then that pesky little preposition comes, but. He says, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Most scholars believe that's probably not her real name, Jezebel, but the reference to the wicked queen of Jezebel in the Old Testament is very much intended here. When Jesus looked in and saw this leader in the church named Jezebel teaching what she was teaching, he saw nothing but wickedness and corruption. Not because she was a woman, not because she called herself a prophetess, there were other, other prophetesses in the Old and the New Testament, including Philip's daughters in the book of Acts who traveled around uh, as, as, as gospel communicators and prophetesses. It's not a gender thing. It, it was the content of her teaching. And what she was teaching people was that sexual immorality and eating foods offered or sacrificed to idols was okay. In other words, mixing in a little uh, uh, pagan practice with your new Christianity was, was all right. 
and it helps understand the business context behind all of this. You see, Thyatira uh, was a, a wonderful place to do business. We're told in the book of Acts that a lady named Lydia had come from Thyatira. She came to faith in Jesus Christ out of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple garments, had a small business. And uh, she was, was part of the, of the trade guilds or the unions there because to do business in Thyatira, you had to join the trade guilds. The problem is to do business on a daily basis as part of the trade guilds, you, you kind of had to go along with some of the pagan practices along with your Christianity. And that created tension between Christians who were now following Jesus versus those who were uh, practicing pagan worship. And it went something like this. This prophetess named Jezebel would probably stand up in her congregation and say something like this. Listen, business is business and church is church. Whatever you got to do to get the business, get the business, as long as you're in church on Sunday. If you have to be out at the pagan temples and engaged in that sexual immorality there and partying it up with the pagans, if you have to do that to get the business, okay, just do that as long as you're in church on Sunday. It'd be like me as your pastor saying, listen, man, I really want you in church on Sunday. It's important for you and your family to be here. But if you want to party at the oceanfront on the night before and just do a little bit of that uh, whatever you're doing out there. I did that in the first service, and I thought that was good. <laughs> My daughter rolled her eyes. You know, business is business. Church is church. Created this dichotomy between the two. And that sort of teaching corrupted the church. I, I can kind of understand the culture back then because before I went into ministry vocationally, I was in the business world, in the corporate world for about seven years in sales and marketing, Fortune 500 companies. And I remember um, when I was a sales manager in the southeast or southwest out of Houston, Texas, my, my boss was in, I believe, North Carolina. Periodically, he'd come in and work with me and you know, we'd, we'd visit with customers during the daytime. But at nighttime, he, he always wanted me to take him to the strip clubs and the bars. Now, this was a married man with a family. But when he traveled, he didn't act married. I was single at the time. He thought, well, sure, that's what you do, right? I said, no, no, I don't do that. Well, why not? You know? And what I learned was it was part of the corporate culture. Because when we went to, you know, national sales meetings, there was always a group of guys married families, but away from their families, not acting that way when they were away, that went out to those places. And I didn't participate in that. And it probably cost me a promotion as time went on. I wasn't part of, you know, the reindeer games. And, and, but, but wouldn't it be wonderful if my pastor had said, hey, whatever, whatever you have to do to get the business, you know, if you got to go out to those places just to you know, go along to get along so you get that promotion. You, you go ahead and do, just as long as you're in church on Sunday. That's the sort of corrupt teaching that was happening in the church of Thyatira, and Jesus had enough of it. You can't mix pagan practices, he says, and then call yourself a follower of Jesus at the same time. Still ahead, the second half of today's Something Good radio message with Dr. Ron Jones. Something new is happening at Something Good. At somethinggoodradio.org, we just released a brand new streaming platform for Something Good Radio and Something Good Television, or what we're calling SGTV. 
There you'll also find Something Good Travel, Something Good Courses, and the new Something Good Digital Library, where you can search for biblical answers to your questions from nearly 30 years of Ron's Bible teaching ministry. Watch, listen, and download for free, and when it's convenient for you. That and a lot more available now at somethinggoodradio.org. Something Good is only able to provide these free resources and this daily program through the faithful financial support from friends like you. And when you send a special gift today, we'll say thank you with a gift of our own, the complete audio download of the series you're hearing now, Mysteries of the Apocalypse, The Last Days of Planet Earth, and The Return of Jesus Christ. Donate online at somethinggoodradio.org or mail your gift to P.O. Box 6245, Virginia Beach, Virginia, 23456. You can also call our offices at 757-276-1099. And now, here's Ron with the rest of today's Something Good Radio message, Letters from Heaven. So we have a, a, a microcosm of the church in a number of different ways. We've got a loveless church in Ephesus, a persecuted church in Smyrna, a compromising church in Pergamum, a corrupt church in Thyatira. And we could go deeper and, and, and talk you know, more about what's contained in these letters. We don't have time for that this morning, I'm trying to give you a, a synopsis of each. But let's just talk about some lessons we can learn from at least these four, and we'll talk about the other three next week. But the first just general thing is there are no perfect churches. We know that. We've come full circle now because I started out by saying it's hard to find a good church today. And it has been in every generation because there are no perfect churches. And we understand that. There's only a perfect Savior. And he is, He's doing His work to perfect us and to sanctify us and to get His bride ready for His second coming. But every church and every generation and every locale is dealing with something. I remember one of my professors in seminary used to say, you know, the church in every generation has just been off point that much. <laughs> what is it in our generation? What are we missing? If Jesus had laser-like eyes and came to this place, what kind of letter would he send us? Would he say, hey, there are some good things that you're doing here, and I commend you for this, but this over here, <laughs> you got to clean that up. Or like you said to the church at Ephesus, I will remove your lampstand. In other words, your place of influence in that culture. And it's why some churches just go out of business. Some be for natural reasons, others because Jesus, the head of the church, removes the place of influence that that church once had. You can go to modern-day Turkey today, travel down the West Coast to every one of these locations where these seven churches were. There's not a church there today. They're mosques. Somebody at some point in some generation took their eye off the ball. Doesn't mean that the church failed, big C. No, the church of Jesus Christ went to other places and grew into other places, and we're here today, 2,000 years later. It just means that that local congregation dropped the ball, and they no longer exist. Okay, Jesus moves on to the next place to try to find some faithful people. May that never be true here. We have a responsibility as people in this church with a stewardship for this church at this time to make sure we hand it off to the next generation successfully and in a healthy way to where the next generation takes it on into the generation that follows. And if we fail in that, shame on us. Doesn't mean that Jesus failed, just means he'll go on and find some other faithful people to carry on his work. 
So there are no perfect churches. Secondly, the church is the apple of Jesus' eye. He loves his church. He gave himself for his church. He went to the cross to redeem his church. And he calls us the bride of Christ. Isn't that beautiful? You see, Jesus doesn't want just a relationship with you. He wants a romance with you. And you can trace that romance all through the pages of the Old Testament. And you study God's relationship with Israel and the language that he uses. There are times when Israel walked away from her. He, 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 he communicates like a jilted lover because he loves his church. He's romancing his church and his people. He calls us his bride. He's gone to prepare a place for us, John 14, and he's building on those additions to his father's house. And like a heavenly groom, one day he's going to return for his bride and take us back to the place that he's preparing so that we can be with him forever. That's John 14, beautiful wedding imagery and romantic language that he uses with his disciples on the night before he's crucified. Jesus loves his church, and it's the apple of his eye. Thirdly, I would say the church is the salt of the earth, and because it is, it's the hope of the world. Do you remember the analogy that Jesus used with His disciples and with that larger crowd in His Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, where He said to His disciples, you are the light of the world. He had already said, I'm the light of the world, but now He says, as my representatives, you're the light of the world. Don't put your light under a bushel, but make it, let it shine. The implication is we live in a dark, dark world, and, and you are thousands and a million points of light to shine the gospel. And then he went on to say, you're the salt of the earth. What did he mean by that? Well, quickly, back in the first century, they didn't have refrigeration. So in the open marketplaces where there was meat and fish and, you know, other food items like that, they packed it in salt to slow down the process of decay. And, and that's, that's what they did. Instead of, you know, packing something in the freezer like we do, they packed it in salt. So when Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, he says, in essence, this world in which we live is not only dark, but it's decaying. And your presence in this world as my disciples, you're the presence that shines light into dark places and that keeps this, this fallen world from decaying even further. You study the book of Revelation. The church is mentioned in chapters 2, 3, maybe chapter 4 when we see the church in heavenly worship. Beyond that, the church is not mentioned, giving rise to many to believe that the rapture has taken place and the tribulation, which is detailed in chapters 6 through 19 of Revelation, the church is not on the earth at that time. Well, what happens as soon as the rapture takes place? All hell breaks loose on, on planet earth. It's the worst of times. It's known as you know, Jacob's trouble, Daniel's 70th week, the great tribulation period. Why? Because the salt is no longer there to hold back the decay. And not only that, the Holy Spirit is gone. So Jesus says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, it's trampled under feet by men. What they would do in the first century when the, when the salt was no longer doing what it was supposed to do, they'd take it and they'd just throw it on the sidewalks. And people would walk on it. How many of you feel like your Christian values are being trampled on their feet by men today? And how many of you are sitting there in the corner just wringing your hands saying, so much is happening in our culture, I just don't understand it. I think it's fair to lay the blame at the door of the church. The church 
which is the salt of the earth, is meant to pack this, this sinful, decaying world and hold back the decay. It'll continue to rot. It'll continue to decay. It will accelerate when the church is gone. It accelerates when the salt has lost its saltiness. And we are in a time of moral freefall and acceleration. Don't blame your government. Look inside the church. Remember the Laodicean church, the lukewarm one just before the end of the age? Are we living in that time? Oh, may it not be said of us that we're neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm toward Jesus. May it not be said of us that we've lost our saltiness in this world. You're, you're perhaps a grain of salt in your neighborhood, in your community, in your place of work, in your family. Maybe you're the only grain of salt, of Jesus' salt, in the extended family in which you live. Be the salt of the earth there. Be, be, the, be the light of the gospel there until Jesus comes. That's our responsibility as the church. Oh, the church in every generation, including the first century, they, they were closest to the gospel, closest to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they veered off course. Just goes to show how quickly, quickly things can deteriorate, even within a congregation. And so let's, let's take these letters. Before we get into the juicier events, of Revelation. Let's take these letters to heart and understand that God's main plan flows through His church. As imperfect as we are, our perfect Savior uses the blood-bought body of Christ to do His work. Let's make sure we do it well. When we look at the spiritual condition of these seven churches, we see that, at least in some way, we're looking at ourselves. And Ron, today's message is such a great reminder that all of us have areas in which we need to grow. Revelation is about prophecy, but it seems to contain a lot of practical wisdom and instruction. It sure does, Brian. You know, I've enjoyed trying to unlock some of the mystery of Revelation, but there's a practical side to the book, one that is clear and unmistakable. It boils down to Revelation 3 and verse 20, where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Now, right here in the middle of unveiling prophecy, Jesus invites the reader to repent and essentially to invite Christ into his or her heart. And for those who have already come to the faith, uh, there's still a meaningful application. Some of these churches had broken fellowship with God. The sanctification process had slowed down or halted uh, because of some form of disobedience. And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm still here, knocking. Uh, let me come in and continue that which I have already begun. In the midst of all this prophetic mystery, uh, the symbolism and the metaphor and all the rest of it, it still boils down to this. Almighty God, the creator of the universe, longs to have an intimate relationship with every person on earth. At the end of the day, that's the ultimate purpose, not only of Bible prophecy and the book of Revelation, but of every theme in the Bible. Jesus stands at the door and knocks. We encourage you to let him in today. 
Well, Ron, tomorrow on Something Good, you continue your series, Mysteries of the Apocalypse, with a message called The Lukewarm Church in the Last Days. Sounds a little ominous, Ron. So what can you tell us in advance of tomorrow's message? Well, you're right, Brian. That message title reads more like a warning label. Now, that's the wonderful thing about God. He can be brutally honest about sin and brutally honest about how much he loves us in spite of that sin. Whether it was Ephesus, the loveless church, or Thyatira, the corrupt church, God confronted them in hopes of having them recognize their shortcomings and repent. He wants to be reconciled to all of his people, and neither corporate sin nor personal sin will keep him from trying. But there is one thing God cannot work with, and that's a lukewarm church. And Brian, that's where we're headed over the next two days, talking about what it means to be lukewarm and how very dangerous it is to be that way. Join us then for Something Good when Dr. Ron Jones shares his message, The Lukewarm Church in the Last Days. For Ron and the entire team here at Something Good Radio, I'm Brian Davis. Thanks for listening.